But we continue the communication of the risen Lord Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor through the Apostle John serving as his scribe to write down what he sees and what he hears. Letters are designated to each church individually and now we are at the seventh church in Laodicea. Jesus saves his harshest criticism for this last church. As he does so, we must discern not only what the Lord is saying to that church, but what he is saying to our church, to the church in our day. I have chosen to use the idiom, that's rich, as the title for the message today to relay the perspective of how the congregation of Laodicea views the risen Jesus Christ and how the risen Jesus Christ, who has been given all authority in heaven and on the earth, how they view the, the congregation at Laodicea. The idiom, that's rich, is often used when something appears to you, <coughs> excuse me, to be either amusing or preposterous or even outrageous. If somebody says something that's outrageous, you might be inclined to say, oh, that's rich. Correct? As a response, if you were to use this phrase, that's rich, as a response to someone, uh, you might be implying that that person you are addressing it to is full of themselves. Can this be the problem with this wealthy church here in Laodicea? That they are full of themselves. Well, although this is not always the case, this can be a definite problem for those who are very wealthy. I am self-sufficient and I need nothing. Whatever needs to be done, I can do it myself because I am a man or woman of means. So at the heart of this issue then is, do you need God? Do you love God, the giver, more than the gifts he gives you? Do you love God, the giver, more than the gifts he gives you? That is Satan's question to God regarding Job, whom God describes as a blameless, an upright man who fears, reveres him, and shuns evil. Satan's question asks, does Job fear God for nothing? The implication is that Job fears God because God has both protected Job and blessed him. He is a man of means. He is a man of great wealth. He is the wealthiest man in the East. So will Job trust you when the God who has protected him removes his protection and the God who blessed him removes his blessing, allowing for Job now to be cursed and treated in a woeful way by the enemy, even Satan? Will he trust in you as his righteous God who is to preserve and uphold his life? This has been the question throughout the ages, throughout all pages of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Will you live your life by faith in God, seeking to promote and establish His kingdom? 
on the earth as it is in heaven, striving to do what is right in, the, in his sight, enabled by his gracious power, or will you live by faith in yourself, trusting in your own resources and abilities, receive from God no less, to accomplish what is right in your own eyes? This is what Jesus is addressing with the church in Laodicea. So let's look at God's word. It's Revelation chapter 3. Verses 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from, from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, which you know means conquers... I will give the right to sit with me at my, on my throne, just as I was victorious or conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would instruct our hearts as well as our minds this morning. Speak through me as your servant, Lord. Bless not just the reading, but the proclamation of your word so that it strengthens and equips us, uh, challenges and convicts us, Lord. All that you would have it do as its purpose is established by you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In a region in Mexico, there is a unique situation where hot springs and cold springs are right next to each other. And so the villagers will take out their dirty clothes and they'll wash them in the hot springs, their pure hot spring water. And of course that heat moves the dirt and the grease and everything off your clothes. So they'll wash them in the hot springs and then rinse them in the cold springs. And as a, as a uh, tourist uh, um, bus was going by, one of the tourists asked their, their leader, their guide, uh, they must think Mother Nature is quite generous to freely supply such ample, clean, hot, and cold water. And the guide replied, No, Senor, there is much grumbling because she does not supply the soap. All that God supplies. And yet does he get the credit? I know they said Mother Nature, but we know better. Can you hear the tourist respond? Well, that's rich. 
It's ironic that although the city of Laodicea was the wealthiest of all the cities before it mentioned per capita, it wasn't as big as some of the other cities, so there might be one that had greater accumulated wealth, but per capita, per person, they were the wealthiest of all these cities mentioned in Asia Minor, and yet they had terrible drinking water. (laughs) Imagine going to Beverly Hills and putting your cup up to the faucet, opening it up and drinking the water, and you spit it back out. That that just doesn't compute, does it? It can't be reconciled. But the only water supply they had that was close to them, that they had had, uh, put an aquifer in to bring that water to their city, was, was warm water. It was hot water, and by the time it got to them, it was warm, tempered, and putrid. It was nauseating. So that was their situation. And yet, this city, Laodicea, was in a a tri-city area where there were two other cities fairly close to it, Colossae and Heropolis. The city of Colossae was known for its cold, refreshing mountain spring water. You could hear a commercial coming out of that, can't you? It was wonderful water that refreshed you. The other city, Heropolis, was known for its hot healing springs. One source of water provides refreshment. The other source of water provides healing. The lukewarm water in Laodicea provides neither. Do we get the hint from the Lord when he uses this to describe how he views the congregation in Laodicea? Their works. Laodicea had grown as a city not obviously because of their water supply. The reason Laodicea had grown was because of its position, its position was strategically situated to facilitate the flow of commerce, not the flow of water. Its water, as I said, was putrid. No one would have settled there if it would have been the, the, for their water. So how important is water in the Bible? Just as Jesus highlights this, to illustrate or to signify what he sees going on in this church. Think about how important water is in the Bible. Well, you know, in creation, water is life. If there were no water on this planet, life as it has been fashioned would not exist. You and I would not exist because we're made up largely, the majority portion in our bodies, of water, right? We see this, the, this revelation of, of uh, water representing life on a much higher plane in Revelation 22, verse 1. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of life, uh, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This life flows from the authority and power of both God the Father and God the Son, and it represents the Spirit as it, as it brings forth power and life to the tree of life, which brings sustenance and healing to the nations. This water represents the life of the Spirit to both bring into existence and animate or give life to what you have made, both form and function. When Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, He is not referring to himself as God's first creation. I think that's why if you have your NIV translations, they try and translate it ruler of God's creation. 
But we're talking about John the Apostle here. We're talking about Jesus being there with the Father at the beginning of creation. And, and John understands what this means. If you look in your Bible at John chapter 1, his gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the same Greek word is used there as it was used in Revelation 3, and it's arche. Arche, beginning. So John 1, verses 1 through 4 says, In the beginning, arche, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was not created at the beginning. He was with God at the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So when Jesus says He is first, the Amen, the words of the Amen, he is referring to himself as the final word on the matter, the ultimate authority uh, and final authority, the ultimate truth. That is what he means there. When he says Amen, Amen, and repeats it, he's saying this is the ultimate truth. And he's talking about himself as the ultimate truth. You remember Jesus saying in in. In uh, John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the ultimate. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so he continues, the final authority, the ultimate truth, the faithful and true witness of God, revealing to us that the just or righteous must live by faith in God, as God is absolutely faithful and absolutely true. And this is Jesus' life as he goes to the cross. Somebody can say when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to his Heavenly Father, this is an intimate conversation with his Heavenly Father, and he's saying, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. And the cup is the cup of wrath. It's the cup of judgment. It's not the cup of blessing. Take this cup from me. And God, His Father, does not respond. He's quiet. Jesus asks again a second time. And then a third time. And the Father's response is silence. On one hand, I think it grieves His Heavenly Father knowing what is coming. Knowing what it's going to cost Him. To send His Son to the cross to die for your sins and mine. And so there's silence there. You, you can imagine Abraham when God is asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. That before he raises the knife, there's, there's a moment of silence where he is grieving. And he doesn't know how this is all going to work out. And yet he's willing to go forth in faith because he trusts God's Word, ultimately, as above anything else, is the final authority and the ultimate truth. Jesus says, Thy will be done, not mine, because He trusts in His heavenly Father as the ultimate authority that His Word is true. And He goes to the cross in faith as a faithful witness to God, revealing that God is just and righteous and that we also must live by faith in God, recognizing that He is absolutely true and faithful. 
the same Heavenly Father who allowed His Son's incarnated physical body to be put to death, destroyed as a sacrifice to take away our sin, restored that temple after three days. Jesus' body and raised Him from death to life just as Jesus said it would happen. So are we being faithful and true in our witness to who God is in our lives? What kind of water are we offering those around us? What kind of life are we offering to those within our community? That is the question. If we are filled with the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is at work in us, what are we offering to those in our community? Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit, by what it produces. Are we faithfully bearing witness to who God is and the gospel of His grace through Jesus Christ? What kind of water are we offering? Are we offering the cleansing and healing power of God's Word through acts of mercy? Humbly serving God and neighbor, promoting God's righteousness? Are we offering new life through the proclamation of the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ? Going back to Revelation 3, verse 14, we look again at Jesus saying, He is the beginning of God's creation. We need to remember that the city of Colossae is not too far away from Laodicea. And they would have been familiar with the letters that Paul wrote to Colossae. And so look in your Bibles at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. This is what is meant by Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, even his new creation. Verse 15 says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn over all creation. This is talking about His resurrection. Jesus is eternal. When, it ta- when Paul talks about Him being the firstborn, he's talk about, talking about Him dying in this world, being placed in a tomb, and on the third day, rising up to life. That is being reborn, if you will, or born again, isn't it? From death to life. And He is alive, as He says, forevermore. And this is the beginning of the new creation. That those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone. The old that is attached to this world. The old that is under the condemnation of God. That is gone. It is the new creation that is that has taken its place. And we have the deposit of that new creation regarding the Holy Spirit at work in our lives who confirms to us that we belong to Jesus Christ and that we will be His forever. Look at 18 through 20. Verses 18 through 20, And He, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. That Greek word, arche again. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. 
bringing into existence new creation through his resurrection power. So he is the beginning, the firstborn among, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. One thing I'm convicted of is you can only give what you have received. We receive life from our parents, right? We're born into this world. We we don't exist apart from that. You can't pay for something unless you receive money, whether you work for it or it's a gift to you, right? You can only give that which you have received. What have you and I received from Jesus? That's what he's asking the church in Laodicea. What have you received from me? In verse 17, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth. And we don't need a thing. We don't really need anything from you, Jesus. We're sufficient in and of ourselves. We have everything that we need. Plus, we don't need a thing. But Jesus says, you don't see who you truly are in my sight. Because when I look upon you, and you exalt the wealth of the world as the standard for success, when I look upon you, this is what I see. I see people who are wretched, Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. All these descriptive words speak of someone who is trying to hide themselves from God by using the world to conceal their true condition before a holy God. More explicitly, it's using the standards of this world to gauge your success instead of seeking the counsel of Jesus Christ through His Word. But God lovingly pursues even His people who are the most nauseating to Him. And this again shows how gracious and merciful the Lord is. This may likely be the stench of death as Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. That means that they're right on the precipice of judgment. But the question then is, how does Jesus see you and me today? How does He see us? Look at verses 18 through 20. This is His counsel. I counsel you to buy from Me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so that you can actually see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. If Jesus has disciplined you, if he is convicting your heart, if he makes things hard for you and, and, and puts trials in your path so that you will be brought to repentance, that is not because he despises you or is judging you, that is because he loves you. And he wants you to stay on the righteous path that leads to the celestial city In the kingdom of heaven. He wants to keep you on that path. He doesn't want you to fall off. 
He doesn't want you to be separated from Him. To be separated from God, to be separated from Christ, is death. It's eternal ruin. He doesn't want that for you. What He wants for you is life and to have it abundantly with Him. So He says, be earnest and repent. Verse 20, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Gold here represents Jesus' wealth, his glory, his wisdom given to you. When these resources are refined by fire, when they are tested through trials and times of persecution, rather than being consumed, they actually become pure. They become more beautiful. They increase your joy and love for God. They even increase your assurance of salvation because you know that you belong to Him. As the third verse, and to God be the glory proclaims great things He hath taught us. This is the gold. Great things He hath done and great are rejoicing through Jesus the sun and purer and higher and greater will be our wonder and transport when Jesus we see. White clothes refers to being clothed in the righteousness of Christ to cover up our sinful nakedness in the sight of God. Sav refers to being able to see your own heart as God sees it and to see this world as God sees it. That can often be the harder one. One missionary's song my dad enjoyed singing went like this. this. The lyrics are, Let me see this world, dear Lord, as though I were looking through Your eyes. A world of men who don't want You, Lord, but a world for which You died. Let me kneel with You in the garden Blur my eyes with tears of agony. For if once I could see this world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. And then it goes deeper. Let me see this world, dear Lord, through your eyes when men mocked your holy name. When they beat you and spat upon you, Lord, the Lord of all creation, their creator. They beat and spat upon him. Let me love them as you love them just the same. Let me stand high above my petty problems and grieve for men hell bound eternally. For if once I could see the world the way you see, I just know I'd serve you more faithfully. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Do you hear me? Do you recognize who I am? Will you open the door? On the one hand, this is a call to repentance. As Jesus is standing at the door and knocking, on the other hand, it is a warning of judgment if you leave him, leave him standing outside. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. 
Have you read Matthew 25 when Jesus comes back in judgment? The portion of the text that is concerning is when Jesus is separating the righteous from the unrighteous and all claim to know Him. All claim Him as Jesus, their Savior. But Jesus says that is not the case. Matthew 25, verse 34 following. King Jesus says to those on His right, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer back, When did we do all these things? Sheep just follow their shepherd's voice. And that's the voice of Jesus. It's, about what I, it's not about what I do, but what I do for others out of gratitude for you, O Lord. Regarding what you, the good shepherd, have done for me because you laid down your life for me. That I might have life that is everlasting. Your life, eternal life. And be set free from the bondage of the law to live for you and serve you. So this isn't about me, this is about you. What I can only give them what we have received from you. And King Jesus responds in verse 40, I tell you the truth, amen. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. When they knocked on your door, as one who was hungry or thirsty, did you open it and let them in? Because as you did to the least of these, my brethren, you did also to me. To those on his left, Jesus responds in the negative with judgment, proclaiming that these people did not serve him. They respond in verse 44. This is my emphasis. Well, that's rich. We didn't serve you? Yeah, that's rich. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick in prison and we did not help you? You saying we didn't help you? That's rich. The implication is that if we had ever seen you in need, (laughs) we would have served you, but you were not here. It's a sin of omission. The servant who was given one talent hid it in the ground because his master was not around. Perhaps if his master had been there, knowing that this was his master's money, his master's resources, perhaps then he would have used it for his master's glory, as the other two did. But his master, in their eyes, was not around. Well, Jesus is around. He is present in the least of these who belong to him. Are we serving them? In Revelation 3, verse 21, Jesus says, To him who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. How will you conquer? How do you conquer the selfish, me-centered, I-focused generation that we live in? 
that tells you constantly to do what's right in your own eyes. Go to a church that tickles your ears, not one that preaches the gospel. How do you conquer that? As it feeds into your, the sinful desires of your heart to be in charge, to be in control, and relinquish that control to your shepherd, to your master, Jesus Christ, and say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. You conquer by living by faith in Jesus, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word, knowing that he will not fail you. You can only give to others what you have first received from the Lord. What are you seeking from the Lord this day? Be rich towards God by investing what he has given you in his kingdom here in this world, even as it is accomplished in heaven. To God be the glory. Amen.